Hi guys, this is Fatal Tales. My name's Katie. And I'm Azra. And today we are going to be talking about Jonestown. Today's a special episode. It's a Katie episode. By that she means Azra had a really rough weekend and super tough week at college this week, so I did all of the research, so please be gentle with any criticism for this week. I'm sure that the research is all going to be very good, and I'm very excited to hear it. I really don't know as much as I probably should about Jonestown as a person who has a true crime podcast. It's kind of shameful, so I'm really excited to learn. Jonestown is one of those cases that I have kind of inhaled information about since I started hearing about it. But one thing that I did not know about Jonestown until, like, starting the research for this case is that Jim Jones was, like, an evangelical Christian and also a socialist, which we'll get into all of that a little bit more later. But, yeah, I feel like this case is surprising. It's got lots of twists and turns and also is horrifying and awful and sad. So... If you're ready for all of that, buckle in. Yeah. Okay, let's get started. I'm so excited. Okay. So most of you probably know about Jonestown, at least a little bit. Most of you probably, if nothing else, have heard the phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid, which is in reference to Jonestown. But there's a lot that most people do not know about Jonestown. And I guess we're going to get into it. I'm first going to talk a little bit about, like, the history of Jim Jones and the People's Temple, which is what he called his church, essentially, and then about Jonestown specifically and the events that led up to all of that, and then kind of some of the impact afterwards. So Jim Jones is the founder of Jonestown, which started out as the People's Temple, like I said, in the 1950s in Indianapolis in Indiana. Jim Jones was a Protestant Christian and he was very invested in fighting for racial equality, fighting for the integration of churches, hospitals, and restaurants. He was very like, I mean, this is probably before this term was used, but he was kind of a social justice warrior essentially, was very invested in gaining equality and rights for black people and other people of color. His church, the People's Temple, was integrated, which at the time in the 1950s and 60s was unheard of. He also had adopted several children of color, some of whom were black, some of whom were Korean and other races. He adopted a lot of kids. He had one biological child named Stephen, and Stephen's middle name was Gandhi. So, like, he was very socially aware, fighting for racial equality, fighting for justice. He looked up to Lenin and Gandhi and Jesus and kind of, he fused a lot of like socialist ideology with Christianity. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, not at all expected. Well, and I, that's the thing. When you learn about Jonestown, you don't really, like you just, most people just talk about the cultness of it, not the, like, ideology behind it or any of, like, Mm -hmm. the history. And it's so fascinating and also terrifying. Right. (laughs) Like, I could have joined this cult, guys. (laughs) (laughs) So another thing that I feel like a lot of people are not aware of about the People's Temple is that 70% of the members of the People's Temple were African-American. Damn. He was reaching out to the poor and to African-American community specifically and just trying to spread his theology there in Indiana initially in the 50s and 60s. And the church that he founded, the People's Temple, joined the denomination, the Disciples of Christ. Disciples of Christ is, on the whole, a pretty woke denomination They focus on racial justice and reconciliation through the gospel. They allow individual congregations today to make their own determination on LGBTQ issues. So the, like, denomination itself doesn't have a firm stance one way or the other. A lot of their denominations are LGBTQ affirming. There's a lot of individual freedom for the church and the pastor, so they don't have as much, like, from the denomination, like, here's what we believe, here's what we think, here's how church should go and what things should be like. 
they kind of let the pastor and the church decide those on a church and pastor level rather than having a lot of overhead from the denomination about things. After Jonestown, they reevaluated a lot of their processes for admitting congregations into their denomination. And prior to this, they didn't have any way of like removing a minister from their roles, but they changed that so that they could remove the People's Temple from the denomination and remove Jim Jones as a pastor, which, I mean, he... Good. (laughs) (laughs) He died anyway, spoiler alert, but they basically were like, yeah, we're disavowing him, like, fuck that dude, which... Yeah. Super valid. So, as I mentioned before, Jim Jones was very socialist as well as being Christian. He fused the two together and he felt that the Bible encouraged socialist ideals and that Christian communities should share their income and wealth within each other so that everyone could prosper if the community was prospering rather than having delineations based on class within the church. His goal was for everyone to be equal, both in terms of race and class and religion. A former member said that Jim Jones was both religious and socialist, and both were an integral part of his appeal. She said, quote, I always looked at the temple as a utopian community that used religion to get where we wanted to go. Other people took it as Christ's way. There's a passage in the Bible where Jesus tells people to leave their families and follow him. Jim quoted that quite a lot. He said he was Gandhi, Buddha, Lenin. He said he was the coming back of anybody you'd ever want to come back, and we believed him. Okay, so that's kind of like <clears throat> the signature cult leader thing that we always see is like the reborn or the rebirth of somebody or like the recoming of somebody. That's what that is. Or like a new messiah or like a new right. prophet that like is mm-hmm. has divine inspiration, yeah. Okay. Which on one level he clearly is not. But on another level, he's appealing to the authority of all of those figures. And some of the people I don't think necessarily believed that he was those things. They appreciated what he was preaching and they appreciated like his values or what he said his values were. And they trusted his authority, mm-hmm. you know, seeing it as, as an appeal to authority as, you know, right. I have the authority that these people do. Mm-hmm. So... Of Jim Jones's family, it was said that they were a, quote, rainbow family and that everyone was welcome. Like I said, he had children of various races. He only had one biological child. He adopted many, many children. And he considered everyone in Jonestown or in the People's Temple to be his children as well. It was kind of he had this big extended family. And the People's Temple was huge. At the height, I think it had like 20,000 people were members of the People's Temple. Yeah, that's kind of interesting that he considers them to be his children or whatever. It's, like, another really culty thing, like... Yeah, and he he wanted them to call him father or... Ew. Dad, yeah. Ew. It's, like, another culty thing where they're all considered family members or whatever. Right, Right. I mean, like, the Manson family. Yeah. Anyways, I hate that. Yeah, kind of gross. So, in the 1960s... Jim Jones decided to move the headquarters of the People's Temple to San Francisco. So they were in Indiana, and then he moved them all to San Francisco. And I think there was, like, a certain amount, like, a remnant of the church that stayed in Indiana, but the majority of the church and where Jim preached from and taught from was San Francisco. Jones... why did he do that? So part of it was... I think he was gaining a lot of attention and heat from people in Indiana. He also, like I said, was very social justice-minded, very invested in poorer communities, black communities. So he felt that he could better reach those communities instead of in Indiana, in San Francisco, where he felt that there were more people that he could appeal to. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And he was probably right. Uh, (laughs) But so... In San Francisco, Jones and the People's Temple quickly began getting attention from political leaders in California. There were several senators and people who really appreciated him and his ideals, especially Democrats, were very fond of him. He ran social programs and political programs. He gave out medical care. There was a dining hall at the church where they would give out free meals. There were drug rehab services that were, you know, given out to people. 
So he was really kind of, he wasn't just saying, oh, we should care for the poor. He was like putting in programs and ways to do that and to take care of people. So his followers, some of them were poor, a lot of them were poor, but he also had lawyers and doctors and teachers and just kind of everybody. He had a a mishmash of everyone. They had a lot of faith in the things that he was saying and the ideas he was putting forth. So it was kind of this idyllic community. Were those the kinds of people that would be putting money into the cult? Yes. Yes. So a lot of those were donors and everybody was encouraged to give away a lot of their possessions to join the cult, essentially. I mean, it wasn't called a cult it was just a denomination a church really at that time but Um, like okay like did you have to give money or have to give something away to be a part of it or no yes from what i understand it was kind of like to gain membership there were certain things that you had to give up and you were when it was in san francisco and indianapolis i don't think it was as strict as it got in Guyana, but there definitely were elements of, like, you have to give things up, you have to give me certain information about yourself, sell all your belongings, not, maybe not all of them, but most of your belongings, trust in me and the community, we'll take care of you, but, you know, we need your money to be able to take care of other people as well, type of a situation. Right, so, like, everything that you have becomes ours, kind of. Right, which, so... He probably appealed to, there's a Bible verse uh, in Acts, I think. I, it's been too long. I haven't read it in a while. I'm pretty sure it's Acts, though, where the author of Acts describes the Christian, early Christian community as sharing everything in common. And so a lot of people, like conservative Christians who are like Republicans are like, they just had, you know, all the same ideas. They all believed the same things. But more progressive Christians and especially socialist Christians are like, nah, they literally shared everything in common. And it's pretty likely that he kind of had the same philosophy and used that verse. I didn't see it in the writing anywhere, but my assumption is based on the way that he talked and the things that he was going for that he used that verse to his advantage of sharing everything in common with the church. Okay. And I think that that didn't even necessarily just extend to, like, their money and their resources, but also to their abilities and talents. Like, he had doctors that were giving away free medical care to people and things like that, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. So there were kind of layers to all of it. Like I said, it's it's possible that the People's Temple had as many as 20,000 members in 1977, which is a year before the Jonestown Massacre. So a fuck ton of people bought into this and really liked what he was saying. Right, because, like, can you imagine right now if somebody came out with all these ideals? I mean, I think that a church like this would be really successful. Yeah. I mean... obviously, minus the culty parts of it. That's that's the thing to me, is, I like I said, I would join this cult. Like, I am all for racial justice and reconciliation and people being... Yeah, but then if he started to say that he was, like, a messiah, kind of, or, like, a reborn, kind of, like, Jesus or Gandhi figure, and wanted you to call him dad or give up all your belongings, like, what would you think about that? I think that you overestimate, not just my personally, but people in general's willingness to disregard things that they like about somebody just because they say a couple of weird things. Yeah, true. Because I think that a lot of people say weird shit. Like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of examples of, like, celebrities that say a lot of weird shit, but people still love them anyway, and they don't really care. See ya. <laughs> maybe Jared Leto. Maybe he's a better example. <laughs> he's he's fucking weird. He um, is sending rats to all of his fucking castmates. Right. Like, Jared Leto, if nothing else, he's probably the prime best example I can think of for that. So, even though, you know, they have all of this good, these good things that they're doing and they're garnering a lot of attention and people really like them, it, like Azra's pointed out, there's some cracks in the the pot here, you know, they're, they don't look great everywhere. Their ideals and, like, their fight for justice kind of obscured some of those problems. People didn't really want to admit that they were problematic because they were doing a lot of good. And a lot of the people in the temple didn't want to pay attention to anything bad that 
they heard about Jim Jones or anything that they found out because they felt like he was on the whole doing a lot of good. One example of this is Jim Jones had a lot of affairs starting in like the 50s when the church started. He had affairs. His son, Jim Jones Jr., described how sometimes they would go on vacations and one week they would stay with his father and a mistress who was staying with them. Oh my god. And then the next week his mom would arrive and the mistress would leave and then they would stay the next week with his mom and his dad. That's horrible. Like, oh my, how much would that confuse a kid also? Well, and he said that his dad would justify it and say that the women needed him and that because he Uh was, like, saving the world and saving the women that it was, like, justifiable. And his mom knew about it. (gasps) No. Yeah. And that was kind of, like, the justification that was given was, like, the, the women needed him. No fucking... Are you fucking kidding me? No, I'm serious. I'm dead serious. That's bullshit. He, he did oh, an in- interview with Oprah. So this this particular son survived the massacre. And he, like, did an interview with Oprah and was telling her about it. And, it like, you watch it and you're like, what the fuck? That is so fucked up. Yeah, it's it's really... Oh, my God. And, and it was not just one, not a few. It was, like, a lot of affairs. Jesus Christ. And apparently, I mean, Jim Jones Jr. believed that, you know, lying about them needing him. And he trusted his dad and he was like, you know, it may not be okay to have affairs, but he on the whole is doing good and maybe the people do need him and whatever. He kind of like would look past it. And I think that that was kind of the philosophy around Jim Jones generally was just he does enough good that it's okay that he's a little off sometimes. Right. Okay. Jones was also very paranoid. He could not understand why anyone would ever want to leave the People's Temple, and more importantly, to leave him. He made members of the People's Temple give up their possessions and even custody of their children to him or to the church. He would also fake cancer healings. So you'd like have somebody say that they had cancer and then they wouldn't really have cancer and then he'd be like, oh, I healed them. And there were... Even at this time in San Francisco, reports of people being beaten for transgressions or whatever. He also made everyone sign compromises, was like the phrasing that he used, where they would confess to things and then they would sign their names at the bottom of the compromises. And Jim Jones would just keep these documents as like blackmail and he would threaten to release them if people left Jonestown. What the fuck? Yeah. So, basically, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. Right. Like, it's progressed from, like, what sounds like a super cool socialist, like, denomination of a church to, like, actual cult that's harming people and is actively dangerous. Right. And so, it it was at this point that the media started to turn on Jones and they were investigating, like, the claims of abuse and, like, the problematic shit that was going on. And so Jim Jones would wear sunglasses in public to avoid having to make eye contact with the media or talk to people who weren't part of the People's Temple. He was basically kind of like just trying to like fly under the radar because the media was like, yeah, you're doing some weird shit, right? What a coward. He did not have it half as bad as Britney did. No, you're right. (laughs) You're right and you should say it. In 1974, Jones decided to start a compound in Guyana. So over a thousand members of the People's Temple went with him to start the compound. And why was it in Guyana? I think it was just the easiest place that he could do it. There were other places that didn't want him to start it there. And I think he just kind of felt like he wanted it to be somewhere that they could grow crops and kind of have a self-sustaining compound. He also did not want to be in the United States. He was in the United States for a long time and started having problems. So he was like, if we're away, then the media won't be able to get after me as much. And mm, yeah. I also think that he maybe unconsciously, I don't, I, I never know how much like credit to give Jim Jones because I think that on one level he was kind of evil. And on the other level, I think that he was kind of didn't fully have his like full mental faculties when he was making decisions. So 
a cynic might say, well, he was trying to control people and, you know, he moved them from Indiana to California, but California is still a big city, you know, and he wanted even more control over people, so he moved them again to Guyana. But then on the other side, if, you know, with the media and everything, it kind of does make sense to go somewhere else. And he wanted to be able to have a self-sustaining place that was like a haven, you know? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think it could be both or either, and I don't know that there's any way to know. Yeah, okay. The premise was that it was going to be like a socialist utopia where everyone would share everything and they would all work together and create like a very equal society. And the name of the compound was the Jonestown Agricultural Project. That's what it was called. Okay. The problems at Jonestown kind of just carried over from the problems that he had in San Francisco. There were men with guns that would police Jonestown and that would guard it. They had, like, watchtowers at the edges of Jonestown that were manned by men with guns who were theoretically keeping people out, but probably Probably more effectively... Probably keeping them in. Yeah, probably more effectively keeping people in because nobody really wanted to get into Jonestown, but Jim Jones kind of built up the appearance that there were people who did, that the U.S. government was after them, or that, you know, just all of these problems. Everyone in the compound was forced to work long hours in the fields, and Jones would punish any members who questioned him. Again, you have these continued accusations of beatings. Um, One survivor of the massacre said, I remember mentioning that I was in the mood for bacon, and someone told me, oh, don't talk that way, you'll get beat. I thought- Oh my god. Yeah, I thought, oh my god, I can't even talk about food desires. So basically, they have no incentive to want to stay, but, like, because of the fear tactics that were being used by Jim Jones, they had every incentive also to not want to leave because they felt that if they left, they would be in danger. Yes, and I think, so, we'll get into it further. Like, the more I talk about this, the more you're gonna be like, wow, this is fucking scary. But there was a lot of pressure on them to leave, but the pressure to stay was kind of also insurmountable. Okay, so, like, they were stuck in between a rock and a hard place, kind of. Right. Like, once you're in, you're fucked. Right, and I think that, like, there were... We know for a fact that there were some true believers who were, like, 110% bought in that were, like, genuinely with him to the very end. There Mm -hmm. were other people that ran away. There were other people that we're scared into staying right we're scared into staying yep now okay when they were in guyana when they had moved into guyana how did they get new members like from guyana to join because like obviously like people were kind of more aware that it was a cult (laughs) so were people in guyana not aware so a the people in guyana probably weren't aware b they weren't super, like, trying to convert anybody in Guyana. They just wanted to get out of America. Okay. Right. And but did they- C, they also had church plants or, like, just, like, different, like, places that were, like, technically the People's Temple that were being led by other people beyond Jim Jones. And I think that it may have been a situation where they would, like, play Jones's sermons at times or things like that. So but, I think that they may have been sending people from there to Guyana, or, like, that may have been the plan, was, like, to continue okay. recruiting people for Jonestown in Guyana, or in um, California and Indiana. Okay, cool. Okay. Now, do you know if they got new members from Guyana as well, or a lot of new members, or what? It's not clear. They left with over a thousand members, um, and the... I don't want to give away all the details, but okay, like, it was okay. less than a thousand at the end. So okay, it wasn't. I don't think it was a situation where they were like evangelizing to the the people in Guyana. Okay, so this same survivor of the massacre went on to describe the worst beating that she ever witnessed. She said, "Somebody was accused of being a pedophile." Jim took hold of a rubber hose and proceeded in front of the others to beat this man's private parts to the point where he was bleeding. I know pedophilia is horrible too, but that was just cruel and totally abusive. There were a number of beatings like that. They were really bad. Okay, now I just, 
I need to ask because like obviously in cults and things like that people get beaten for no fucking reason and like obviously pedophilia is a reason to get punished but like was there even like proof that this guy was a pedophile she doesn't describe any of the details of it she she did an interview with um the atlantic and that was kind of the end of the description of that incident that was all she really said about it okay so i i wish i had more details on that but she didn't describe it any further because like my thing is like if they're getting beaten for like talking about food or like random things you know like in cults and things like this like you could get beaten for like any reason and then like have a reason placed on it you know right and i don't I th- know i think that this like, may ob- have been sorry like obviously if he's a pedophile like like that's horrible but i don't know you understand what i'm saying what else are you gonna do because like there's not police like you are the enforcement of your colony or your cult true so true yeah fuck yeah i mean there are guyana has police but like they weren't gonna turn him into the police because they're a cult in addition like i said jones would both blackmail and drug anyone who tried to leave in an attempt to control them so he would like put them on sedation or other things like there was a special pavilion in jonestown that was dedicated to anyone who wanted to leave jonestown would basically be put there and drugged and you know threatened and blackmailed and forced to stay god um, he also refused to let any children leave Jonestown because, again, he made them sign over custody of their kids. So, what? Did you not hear that when I was talking earlier? Maybe I missed it. Yeah, so he, he had people sign over custody of their kids because they shared everything in common, and the kids didn't stay with their parents, like, in the same, in the same area of Jonestown. They would stay instead, like, in barracks, and the parents would stay in, like, barracks so the kids were separated from their parents the whole time that they were there what the fuck yeah that's so messed up what the hell yeah so jones would threaten to never let people who left see their children again oh my goodness okay and over the months of like jonestown existing the people in jonestown were indoctrinated and poisoned against the outside world Jones would tell them that there were horrible things going on in the United States. He would talk about, like, genocide of black people and African Americans being put in concentration camps and just all these things that weren't actually happening. But because Jim Jones was pretty much the only one that had genuine contact with the outside world, they kind of just took his word for it they got letters from people and they were able to use the phone but their phone calls were monitored and their um letters were censored so they really didn't know what was happening on the outside aside from what jim told them wow prior to actually committing the mass suicide jim jones had a ton of practice runs and he called them white knights he would ask his followers to pledge themselves and their lives to the non-isms, is what he called them. Non-racism, non-sexism, non-ageism, non-classism, etc. He would basically say, like, are you willing to die for this cause, these non-racism, classism, whatever? Are you willing to, like, give your life for that? And there were loudspeakers all over the compound, and Jones would play himself talking over the loudspeakers, pretty much 24-7. If there was times where he was sleeping or he didn't feel like talking, he would take old sermons that he had recorded and play them over and over and over again. Wow, so these people were just like... Hearing him all the time. Completely indoctrinated by being forced to listen to him because if you're constantly, constantly hearing him talk and hearing his sermons and you have nothing else to hear, you have no one else to talk to, no one else's opinions, and this guy's telling you what I'm saying is true, and I am like a... Jesus-Gandhi-Buddha hybrid. Right, exactly. Like, I'm that. You're gonna believe it, even if you don't completely at first, or you start to kind of shift in your belief slowly. Like, you're gonna get bought into it again, because like, 
what else is there? Like, you are being indoctrinated into it. Right. And another thing, so if Jim Jones was talking, no one else was allowed to talk. So if he was playing on the loudspeakers or if he was talking or he was, you know, doing anything, nobody else was allowed to say anything. If he was giving a sermon, nobody else was allowed to talk. So... So his word was being treated like gospel. Right. And, like, there were times where it wouldn't play. Like, they would have dinner or things like that. But, like, in general, most of the day and night, his voice was on. So if his voice is on most of the time, they're not allowed to talk when his voice is on. They can't even converse with each other a lot of the time. Right. And hear each other's opinions who are in Jonestown. Right. This is this is the cult. They're all part of it. They're all believing it, but they can't even say it to each other. If you're in a point in the cult where you're starting to doubt it, you can't even express that to someone who is sitting next to you because you're not allowed to fucking talk to them. Right. Exactly. In addition, so on those like white nights, the nights where he would like practice run the um, mass suicide, he would call out over the loudspeakers and tell everyone to go to this pavilion in like the middle of Jonestown and that their lives were in danger and that the U.S. government was coming to take over the camp and to bring them all back or to kill them all or whatever. And he would have some of his closest followers run around in the woods firing guns and they would just like scare everyone into the middle of like Jonestown. And so one of... Jim's followers said she noticed that when he was like when these people were coming with guns and stuff he wasn't scared but one time like a piece of roofing fell off of a like roof they were repairing it and he like jumped and was super startled and she was like oh he's not scared when they're shooting actual fucking guns in the woods but he's scared when somebody drops a piece of tin what if it's all fake (laughs) Right. Yeah, because that's not fucking normal. Right. And she's one of the ones that survived. The way that she got out, she was, like, one of his secretaries, was she, like, basically asked to be transferred back to the San Francisco chapter of the People's Temple so that she could be a secretary for the People's Temple there. Because there was some... She was, like, basically, like, we can't trust them because they don't understand what it's like in Jonestown and, like you need somebody from the inside who's there to take care of them and make sure that things are going okay. And so Jim trusted her enough that he sent her back and then she took off and was like, fuck you guys, I'm out and like fucked off to somewhere in the northeast of the United States and changed her name for a while. Wow. Yeah. So she's really lucky. Yeah. That he Um, trusted her enough. Yeah. And then she like left and was like, she said that she had to get to a point where she didn't care if she died, she just wanted the rest of her life, however short that would be, to be free. Yeah. So, I've kind of already explained a lot of, like, the fucked up shit that he would tell them, but on those white nights, they would all gather at the pavilion, and he would reiterate those things about, you know, the U.S. devolving into chaos and genocide and the U.S. coming to destroy them, and then he would pass out cups with Kool-Aid or Flavor-Aid, whichever one they had, And he would ask everyone to drink it. And if they didn't, they were forced to. And then when nobody started dying, Jones would start laughing and say now he knew he could trust them. Wow. That's Um, fucked. And then he would send them to bed and just be like, okay, good night. Wow. And it was like they couldn't sleep, most of them, because they were so amped up from, you know, the fucking terror that they were subjected to. Right, because they thought that they were going to fucking die. And they, like, willingly chose to die. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. didn't. Yeah. What choice did they have, though? Because, like, it was probably, like, either drink the Kool-Aid or, like, get fucking shot. <laughs> right. And that's that's exactly how it was. For some people, it was, like, they, they chose to drink it. Some people, they didn't really choose to drink it, but under threat of weapon, they decided to drink it. And other people were, like, forced. Like, 100% forced. Right. So even though they had practices and, like, drill runs of this, it's pretty likely that everyone at the compound, when it actually came time for the mass suicide, they knew that it was for real because the final day at the compound was a very bad day 
Leo Ryan was a California senator, and he had gotten word from some of the family members of people who were in Jonestown that the people that were there weren't allowed to leave, and that, like, there was some abuse happening. And so a lot of the people in Jonestown were from San Francisco, and they were from Ryan's district, Leo Ryan's district, so he felt partially responsible and he cared a lot about his constituents he cared a lot about the people who were writing letters so he decided to try and intervene in this situation so he wrote to jim jones and was like hey i'd like to come visit jones was like nah fuck you i don't want you to come and leo ryan basically on the 14th of november was like it doesn't matter if you want me to come whether you want me to come or not i'm gonna be there and i'll see you soon so on the 17th of november in 1978 he flew down to the compound. When Leo Ryan's entourage arrived in Guyana, their plane, its wheel broke. So they were already planning to get another plane to come and pick them up because you can't fly a plane with a broken wheel. And then, so he got to the compound and he was welcomed by Jim Jones and the like people at the compound and he was treated to dinner and there was entertainment and it was kind of like actually a rel- relatively good night. Like everybody got along and was having a great time. And Jim Jones even sat down with some of the reporters who had come with Leo Ryan. But even though everything was going well, some of the members of the cult passed some notes to Leo Ryan, basically saying like, we want to leave with you. And so that was kind of the only real red flag for Ryan. He kind of didn't really, aside from this, there was no cause for concern. He ended up staying the night, and the next morning, he loaded all the people who wanted to leave with him on a truck, and he said that he would give a mostly positive report of Jonestown, but um, he was the last person to get on the trucks to leave Jonestown. There were a couple of people that kind of were hanging out with him, waiting, and just talking to anybody that was still there, trying to figure out if anybody else needed to go with him, wanted to go with him. Um, He wanted to give everybody an opportunity to leave if they wanted to. So in total, there were about 16 people who asked to leave with him and were loaded onto the truck. Okay. The temple even, like, willingly gave up their passports. I didn't mention this earlier. So before, when everyone arrived in Guyana, Jim Jones took all their passports and, like, kept them. So nobody really could even leave. They didn't have any money. They didn't have their passports. And there was no way to, like, get back to home. What are you going to do? Just go, like, beg some person in Guyana to, like, take care of you? That's probably not going to happen. Right. Yeah. Okay. So the temple ended up giving back their passports, and they also gave $5,000 to help with travel costs to get them back to the U.S. So it seemed like everything went well, and everything was going to be okay. They were just going to load up in the trucks and leave. But before he was able to leave, one of the members of Jonestown grabbed Uh, Leo Ryan, held a knife to his neck and threatened to kill him. What? Yeah. So Ryan and a few of his team that were with him were able to fight the man off and Ryan joined the rest of the people and jumped on the truck and was like, fuck, let's get out of here before this gets any worse, right? Oh my god. So they got to the airport and like I mentioned, the plane that they were on had a broken wheel. So they couldn't take that plane and they were waiting on another one to arrive. So the plane was pulling in And just as it was arriving, the People's Temple truck pulled up along with a tractor, and the truck and the tractor were full of men. No. Oh, God. So it seemed like when they left, everything would be okay and that they would just be allowed to leave. But by the time that Leo Ryan left, Jones was just allowing the paranoia to overcome him. And it's believed that potentially Jones was suffering from some sort of mental illness that led him to have some kind of delusions or something because he was very paranoid. (laughs) I I don't even know how much of what he was saying he believed himself because it's entirely possible that he had convinced himself of all of the things he was telling the people in the People's Temple and the people in Jonestown. So he ordered his men to pursue Leo Ryan and the people that were taking off in the truck to the airstrip and to kill them. So at the airstrip, they were just starting to load everyone up onto the planes and everyone from like the People's Temple was searched before they were allowed to get onto the plane because they didn't want someone who wasn't really wanting to leave to 
be on the plane with a weapon and be able to kill anyone that was leaving or, you know, hurt anybody or they just didn't want anything like that to happen. So they were trying to make sure that everybody that was with them actually wanted to leave and that they didn't have any weapons and everything was going to be okay. So Okay, yeah, that makes sense. They were searching everybody and as they were searching everybody and loading the planes, one of the members of the People's Temple that was pretending to be leaving disarmed a security guard, the only security guard that they really had who had a shotgun. He took the shotgun from him and then the shooting started. God, okay. So the men in the trucks and the tractor started firing. Um, They severely injured and killed several of the people that were trying to load into the planes. So when the initial shooting stopped, one of the members of the People's Temple, the one that had disarmed the security guard, pulled out a gun and started trying to finish off the rest of the survivors of the attack. So he was, like, shooting people and trying to just, like, make sure that everyone was dead. The guys in the trucks left and took off back to the People's Temple, or to Jonestown, and this guy was, like, supposed to finish everybody off. So one of the reporters that was there basically just, like, jumped at him and struggled with him and stole the gun from him. He tried to shoot it at the, like, People's Temple member, um, but the gun misfired, and so he couldn't, There, it didn't do anything. Um, oh, fuck, okay. But the guy ended up basically just running off into the woods. The Guineas police later found and arrested him. And then, so, basically everything had calmed down. Everyone was laying on the airstrip. It took several hours for them to receive any kind of care or support. Finally, the community and the Guyanese police showed up. They set up, like, litters and tents for the, like, severely wounded. Everyone who wasn't wounded stayed in the homes of people who lived nearby, um, like, Guyanese people. And they set up a guard station at, like, the tents in case the attackers decided to return. But they only had one gun, a machete, and a knife to defend themselves from anybody that came to attack, so it was kind of... Just, like, a hastily put together group of, like, people who really weren't prepared in any way to deal with what was happening. Right. Okay. The final death toll was there were five people who were killed, including Leo Ryan. Five people were seriously wounded, and there were five who had minor injuries. Nine of the people that were loading into the planes were uninjured, and then six went missing. They were believed to be hiding in the brush nearby, um, and I think they eventually turned up. But that was kind of, like, at the end of the night, that was the toll. That's so sad that he went there to help them and then ended up getting murdered by by these people. Yeah, it's really fucking tragic. And it would have been worse if the one reporter hadn't taken the gun from the fucking asshole who was trying to shoot everybody. After the trucks got back to Jonestown, Jim Jones declared a white knight. And everyone was rushed to the pavilion. He gathered everybody to the pavilion and started explaining that Leo Ryan and the others had left. The U.S. government was going to try to shut down Jonestown because of what Leo Ryan was going to tell them. He was like, our lives are in danger. They're going to kill us all. They're going to get rid of Jonestown. Our way of life is going to end. Everything good that we've built here is going to end our, like, pursuit of equality and justice is going to be over and we have to commit this revolutionary act. And he, that's kind of how he phrased it, was like, this is something that will be revolutionary and that will, you know, really make everyone see how serious we are about what we're doing. Rather than do anything to help the world and change it for the better, let's do this instead right it's super fucked it's super fucked um i'm about to talk about the mass suicide now so this this next part fucking sucks so the people's temple or the people at jonestown had mixed together large amounts of cyanide sedatives and flavor aid and basically put it all together for everyone to drink it jim jones ordered that the children should drink first. Anyone who was too young to drink the flavor aid was administered the lethal mixture using like little droppers full of cyanide sedative and flavor aid. God. Once the children had been forced to drink it, the adults 
lined up and also drink it. Um, it's believed that there may have been more resistance if the kids hadn't been made to drink it first because the parents would have had the incentive to try and leave, but because their kids were already dying or going to die, the parents kind of just accepted their fate. Like right. I said, there were a few people that ran away into the forest and escaped, but basically everyone at Jonestown ended up either drinking it or being forced to and died. That's fucking awful. Yeah. On November 18th, the Guyanese police went to Jonestown to investigate after the attack at the airstrip, which was all that they were aware of, and they found hundreds dead at Jonestown. The final death toll that they figured was 909. A third of that number was children. Fuck. I don't know. I'm just taking a second to process them. Yeah. That's a lot of people. Um, yeah. So you said that it was about a thousand when they went to to Guyana, right? Right. And I think that some were sent home. Some did leave of their own, you know, will. And some... Escaped. Escaped, yeah. Okay. Um, wow. Jones himself died of a gunshot wound. He didn't drink the flavor. Did he commit suicide? Yeah. And is there a reason that we know of why he decided not to drink the Kool-Aid and he decided to, like, kill himself, like, with a gun instead? I think that part of it has to do with the fact that cyanide's a fucking awful way to die. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he probably watched a bunch of other people die of cyanide poisoning, so... Will you go into, like, what happens when you die of cyanide poisoning? So, one article by A&E on cyanide poisoning describes it this way. It's horrifying. It is not in any way a painless death. The deaths in Jonestown took anywhere between 5 and 20 minutes. First, oh God. your entire body starts to convulse. Then your mouth fills with a mixture of saliva, blood, and vomit. Then you pass out, and then you die. Your body is deprived of oxygen completely. It's a horrific death. So they were tortured for 5 to 20 minutes. Yeah. One of Jones's mistresses reportedly came to the microphone while people were in the process of drinking the uh, flavor aid and cyanide after hearing many children crying she said it's not painful they're just crying because it tastes bitter but what? it was undoubtedly extremely painful to each and every person fuck oh my god and one third of some were children yeah like babies so what happened to the people like jim jones's mistresses and his wife and the people closest to him in the cult everyone pretty much died they um, all drank the cyanide yeah as as far as i know none of the people close to him well so there were a handful of the people close to him that were away at the time of the mass suicide they were at a basketball tournament in another part of guyana I don't know why they were allowed to go to a basketball tournament, um, but three of his sons survived because they were at this basketball tournament. Basically, Jim called his sons while they were away and told them that the compound would be, quote, visiting Miss Fraser, which was code for committing suicide. He told his sons to find knives or poison if they could and kill themselves as well. What? Jim Jones Jr., who was 18 at the time, said that he argued with his dad, asking if there was any way or anything that they could do other than committing suicide. He didn't yeah. believe the phone call. He was really worried about his family and his wife. So they went, he and his friends and, like, his brothers went to the U.S. Embassy to try and figure out what was going on, but it was too late. Oh my god. There were 33 total that were found to have survived Jonestown. Like, the massacre. Wow. Like, they just survived the poisoning, or they escaped? Oh, you don't survive cyanide. They escaped. Okay, yeah. I or, like, weren't. Kind of a dumb question. Or weren't home. So, was anybody, I guess nobody was really able to be arrested for this, even though we know who's responsible. Yeah, so, the police obviously arrived, the FBI went out and investigated, but there wasn't a ton to go on. Most of the people who were, I mean, essentially all of the people who were involved in the planning or the enforcement of the mass suicide were already dead. They had killed themselves. So most of the people that died were 
basically they appeared to have committed suicide, they um, drank it. Or potentially many of them were forced to drink it, but we know at least a few of them did did so willingly. But some people had needle marks as if they had been injected with the cyanide instead of drinking it. So not everyone went willingly or even willingly drank it. Okay. There was only one person who was convicted in the tragedy. If you remember, I mentioned a guy that was shooting people at the airstrip and then was later arrested by the Guyanese police. Yes. Um, that man's name is Larry Layton, and he was sentenced to life in prison. He was convicted and sentenced to life in prison after being arrested by the Guyanese police and then extradited by the FBI. Okay. Many of the bodies were identified, but 410 of them were unclaimed by family members. There were 160 that were not identified. Most of those were children um, because they were too young to have identifying dental records outside of Jonestown. Since Jonestown had its own medical services, they some of them were too young to have ever had medical care of any kind outside of Jonestown. Wow. Okay. Um, so sad. Yeah, it's, it's fucking tragic. This was, until 9-11, the largest, like, non-war or natural disaster, like, cause of American casualties. Really? Yeah. So, a memorial and a mass grave was built at Evergreen Cemetery in Oakland, California, for the people who were, whose bodies were not claimed, or the ones that couldn't be identified. At first, it was just kind of a small little headstone memorial that read in memory of the victims of the jonestown tragedy family and friends raised money to create like a more full memorial um one woman raised the money for two stones that had a bunch of names on them and she unveiled them in 2008 but the stones didn't fit all of the names and so she was trying to raise money for four more it was taking her a really long time to raise that money so in 2010 other fundraisers gathered i think fifteen thousand dollars and then they basically put up a full monument the monument that they did build was kind of controversial because it included jim jones on the list of names oh many, yeah many people were really fucking horrified by that so he his name wasn't listed as jim jones on the stone um instead it was his full name i think it was james jones and but his like, name is last on his particular like section of the memorial why would they put him on the stone i don't understand so some they kind of argued about it before they put the stones in um, some people felt that it would be inappropriate because obviously he's the reason that it happened. I tend to agree with them, but the people who built the memorial felt that in a way it was a historical monument to no. the people um, who died and that not including him would not be including the full story of what happened. Um, I mean, if you want to make it like a historical monument, don't put his name with the other people who died. Put their people who died on the stones and then have like a little plaque or put like have like a little card or something that says these people were in a fucking cult ran by Jim Jones. And he's the reason that they're fucking dead. Yeah. I mean, I don't disagree, but that was the determination that they ultimately came to was that his name should be included and oh that kind of makes me sick i would feel sick if i like had a family member who was killed and his name was on the same stone as my family member yeah i don't know that's just my opinion though yeah i mean it it's pretty gross i mean either way what happened is fucking awful and a lot of times it's talked about as like a mass suicide but to me, I see it as a massacre. Like, he killed all of those people. And right, because, like, it was, like, a... Like, a indoctrination over the course of multiple years. Right, and there like were... mass indoctrination. And there were people there who did not want to die. Right. Very clearly. Exactly. And there was children, like... The children didn't choose to kill themselves... They were forced to drink the Kool-Aid. Right. Well, it was flavored, but yeah. Whatever. Everybody says drink the Kool-Aid, and it's kind of a pet peeve of mine, because it's not 
Kool-Aid. It was never Kool-Aid. Okay. Okay, babe. I'm sorry. It was Flavor Aid. It's okay. It is, it like, is fucking tragic regardless, though. And those, I mean, the kids, even if they willingly drank it, they didn't realize what it was. No. Yeah, they didn't know. Like, they thought they were just drinking something yummy. Right. And, like, okay, even the people who were completely bought into it, they were bought into it because his viewpoint was the only viewpoint that they had heard for years they had no way of contacting the outside world they had no way of talking to the people that they loved they had the rights like they had custody of their children taken away from them they had their passports taken away from them they had their possessions taken away from them they were told that if they went back to america they would be living in worse conditions they were told like all this bullshit by him right right like complete indoctrination so even if they were completely bought in you can't really blame them because this guy was like a master fucking manipulator in that way yeah i mean like i said there is some speculation that he was suffering from some delusional mental illness and in that case it's like maybe he believed everything he was saying and that's scary to me too you know yeah that somebody can do something so fucking evil not because they want to but because they are they think they need to yeah they're trapped in a world where reality is not real yeah like he but we don't know if he had a mental illness right there's no you can't ra- retroactively diagnose somebody we know he was very paranoid we know he told them things that were not true we don't know for sure whether he believed those untrue things right I I just want, I don't, I'm not trying to be an apologist for Jim Jones. He's a horrible fucking human. He did a lot of really fucking awful things and killed almost a thousand people. I just also want to discuss the fact that he may not have, he may have believed everything he was telling them. Even if, like, he's fully responsible, he may have been delusional as well. Yeah. It's just fucking tragic. 909 is so many people and like one third of that being children well and i feel like i don't know when i think like when i heard it at first i was thinking 60 people maybe you know like Mm -hmm. that seemed like a reasonable number for me to be like yeah i think you could convince 60 people to maybe like believe in you fully enough to kill themselves yeah but like 900 yeah nine fucking hundred horrifying yeah horrifying 900 people like i can't even wrap my head around like picturing that many people dying right at once and the thing that you have to think about too just the sheer logistics of passing out drinks to 900 people yeah it's speculated that it took as many as four hours for everyone to drink so these people were watching the children suffer potentially for 20 minutes and then adults suffer and be tortured like have this torturous death for 20 minutes potentially and still continue to line up and get the drink yeah well or be forced to line up and get the drink i was gonna say i don't know that everyone had a choice i think that some people like i said i'm sure that there were people that willingly did it you also have to put yourself in the frame of mind where you have no contact with the outside world Everything that you know about the United States is that it's horrifying and chaos and there's genocide happening. You yourself are black, right? So you, if you go back to the U.S., you're thinking, I'm going to a concentration camp where I'm going to be, you know, have Lord knows what happened. Yeah. Lord knows what happened to me. It's just like, I can't even imagine the terror, especially for those people that weren't bought in completely. Yeah. No, it's, it's horrifying horrifying i think that another thing that's really interesting is that like he was like a religious socialist right which is not really something that you'd expect right i mean i think that when we think like quintessential cult we as americans particularly like to think of satanists or you know the documentary wild wild country about the like hindu like branch of hinduism that formed a cult or buddhism that forms cults or you know other religions being cults and that honestly when i heard about jonestown i had no idea he was a christian because i just assumed that cult means other religion besides christianity 
in like a certain definition see to me like it's not surprising that he was christian because in my mind like most people in america at that time were christian right and i feel like a lot of quintessential cults or whatever are just branches off of religions that just like kind of take an extreme form that turn into like very vicious and very extreme abusive situations abusive situations yes in which like one person like claims to be like a reborn or version of like jesus or like some prophet or something like that right i mean i think that that's one definition of cults i think that that's kind of like the colloquial way that we refer to cults is that like it's like a abusive group that like isolates members and has a charismatic leader and you know jonestown fits into a lot of those right isolating members being abusive towards members indoctrination charismatic leader all of those things fit jonestown So it is kind of accurate to call Jonestown a cult, but in religious studies, cult isn't really a term that's used pretty much ever. Um, Instead, like the term is new religious movement, which Jonestown also fits the definition of, which is essentially like a, a religious movement that is fewer than like roughly 200 years old that has, you know, radical ideals about things or that has new ideas or new practices that other like versions of that religion or sects of that religion don't have and i think that you know jones's fusing sorry fusing of socialism and christianity was radical and new and kind of classifies him as a new religious movement in that way as Mm -hmm. well yeah and i think like the reason that religious studies doesn't classify cults the same way as any religion can be abusive and i think that that's also evidenced by jonestown oh yeah i think any religion can be abusive i think that jim jones being a socialist you know very left-leaning it kind of shows that any person on the political spectrum can also be very abusive right and can Um, can garner large large amounts of support and be abusive towards his you know followers and create really dangerous situations Mm -hmm. i feel like especially nowadays we tend to surround ourselves especially on social media with people who share the same opinions as us yeah because it's really easy to you know definitely and i think that kind of creates a mentality that the people who share the same beliefs as you aren't capable of hurting others or capable of like bad things or evil things in the same way as people who are on the opposite side of the political spectrum absolutely and like yes people who are more right-wing do tend to be more homophobic and racist and things like that absolutely but anybody is capable of being an abuser being a manipulator and committing like a fucking mass like a massacre like a mass murder right or inciting a riot at the capitol yes like i mean i think that jim jones and trump are kind of two sides opposites yeah yeah and and they both yeah. did atrocious things and mm-hmm. i mean well five people died at the capitol riot so I was, I was gonna say nobody died but no people did die people did die. Yeah. and it was trump's fault yeah but like it's just like i think it's an important takeaway yeah from this as well Definitely. I completely agree. And I think it's something that we don't like to think about. It makes us uncomfortable. But I think it's super important to realize that just because you have the right ideas about race or sexuality or anything else doesn't mean that... That you're perfect. Well, that you can't be a bad person still or you can't, (laughs) you know, be capable of evil things um yeah not being racist and not being homophobic doesn't make you incapable of still harming other people right right because you see a lot of people like that who are the abusers in abusive relationships as well absolutely and i think jim jones is just like a magnification of that Uh, Yeah, exactly. A magnification of an abuser in an abusive relationship, except he was abusing, like, a thousand people instead of one person. Absolutely. Yeah, because, like, it was a lot of emotional manipulation and things like that. 
And then obviously escalated to physical abuse. Yeah, physical abuse, emotional abuse, financial abuse, sexual abuse of some of his followers, affairs with many, many women, some of whom had... Well, I guess it it depends on how you view consent. Some of them could have consented, but I mean, with power dynamics the way that they are and who they thought Jim Jones to be, I don't know that it's entirely possible for them to consent. Or what he would have done if they didn't consent. Right. I mean, the the woman that was his secretary, she describes an incident where he held a gun to his her head and told her to tell him that she loved him. Oh, fuck. And she was like, well, I can't, I can't, I don't love you. Because she, it was like a coin toss in her head. She was like, if I don't tell him that I love him, he might shoot me. But if I lie to him, he might shoot me. And I don't love him. So... I'm not going to lie to him because hopefully he'll let me live. And he did. Wow. That's just, like, fucking scary. But, I mean, she was also, like, one of his mistresses or somebody he was having having an affair with. And, I mean, that's very clearly, like, both physical abuse, emotional abuse, and sexual abuse. Right. So, he was very, very, very abusive as a person. Right, yeah. So, like you said, like a magnification like abusing a thousand people instead of just one person right this one's a heavy one this one's hard this is a hard one and i there's a lot of discussion to be had about it and i'm definitely going to be thinking about it for a long time after this yeah it's one that like i haven't been sleeping great because i'm just like it's so heavy yeah anyways thank you guys for listening let us know what you think about jonestown what you think about the situation and yeah yeah let us know and you can let us know over at our instagram at fatal tales or on our twitter at fatal tales pod um you can also feel free to send us any case suggestions of cases that you would like to see covered you can send us an email at fataltales at gmail.com please consider um giving us a five-star review and rating at apple podcasts those help us out a lot as a new podcast and yeah i guess that's all um remember guys be gay and don't do crimes or at least don't get caught have a good one guys Bye, guys.